Penny, thank you for reading for us. Please do keep uh, page 1200 open in front of you. If you close your Bibles, please open them again. We're going to be looking at that passage in a moment. It is a bit of a treat, I think, today. It's not often you get to study a whole book of the Bible in one go, uh, but we're going to do that today, and that's uh, hopefully a, a treasure. Um, it struck me this week how topical Philemon is. Uh, and therefore, I, w- I would like to be doing this over four weeks, I think, rather than one week. And so um, I hope that you'll, you'll take time after the service to, to dwell on and chat together and apply what we've been, uh, been looking at. Um, really, I think it is uh, most necessary for us. It's a key uh, subject we're looking at, uh, betrayal and forgiving those who've betrayed us. And I guess uh, that'll be, for some of us, a particularly painful and pointed thing and so it really merits uh, more time than we have to give it but I have one week to do it and so we're going to look at it in one week and I'm going to pray that God will use that to his glory let's pray shall we our father your word is rich and deep and forgive me for thinking I can teach this one chapter in a week Uh, please Do a wonderful work amongst us this morning. Please help my frail and feeble words to be your powerful, mighty words in the hearts of your people. I pray that particularly for those who are carrying great burdens of sorrow and over betrayal, to be able to lay them down at the cross today, that you might free us from great pain and wounds that others have done us, And that you might manifest in your church the great reconciling power of the gospel. For your glory, for our comfort and good, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, betrayal is a a dark word, isn't it? It's a a word that carries uh, pain. It dredges up those uh, deep, dark memories, the worst of memories that we've buried so far down that we've long forgotten them. And just as we uh, find it personally painful to confront the things that have been done to us, or indeed the things we've done to others, so as a culture we've been going through something of a a dredging of our corporate memory, haven't we, in the last few years. And it's been painful for us. Uh, You think back to sort of 2012, the Jimmy Savile scandal, followed swiftly by a a raft of respected men at the BBC being uh, hauled before the courts. Uh, More recently, we think of uh, revelations of paedophiles operating amongst uh, professional football clubs. There was the the coach for the uh, US Olympic gymnastics team, the the medic for the team there. We think of the predatory behaviour of Harvey Weinstein and a whole uh, movement to uncover what has been essentially a systematic abuse of uh, young men and women by powerful men in Hollywood over some years. And it's not as if betrayal is only in the sexual arena. I've been reading uh, this book uh, in the last couple of weeks, When Harry Became Sally by Ryan Anderson, in which there are heartbreaking stories of people who have gone through transgender operations only to later realise that, that they wanted to go back, having mutilated their bodies. They've uh, tried to go back and they speak of a sense of betrayal by Uh, by parents who should have known better, Uh, by schools and and medical professionals who should have known better. Uh, That sense of betrayal by all the people who hold your trust as a young person. 
we know betrayal, don't we, when, uh, when we, we tell a, a deep secret to a friend who then goes and tells the world on social media. Or, or uh, of parents who've emotionally abused their children to great damage. In my own family, my, uh, my brother uh, persuading my parents to give him uh, their savings and then fleeing the country and leaving them penniless. A betrayal comes in many forms and it is always a horrible experience which can have uh, enormous lasting consequences. And some of us here will be carrying uh, deep uh, scars from years of abuse of various kinds. And for some of us, they're still open wounds uh, that hurt us every day. And so I don't treat this subject lightly at all. And this morning we're going to look at one specific example of trust betrayed and how uh, the Apostle Paul writes to uh, his friend Philemon to forgive the person who has betrayed him. Uh, Philemon is a book about a particular uh, case of abuse trust. And we need to be careful when we, when we come across the particular not to, uh, to blindly generalise. We need to be careful to, to pay attention to the contours of this case So we uh, apply it carefully. Uh, Let's look, therefore, at the three characters in our story. The first is the Apostle Paul. Verse 1, he's a prisoner for Christ, probably in Rome. He's a prisoner for the gospel. He's been preaching the gospel and he's been put in prison in Rome. Uh, And then there's Philemon. He's the recipient of the letter. Uh, He's, verse 1, we're told, he's a dear friend and fellow worker. He's a committed Christian who is uh, serving Christ uh, Philemon's in, in Colossae. Uh, we know that because we're told about Archippus in verse 2, the, the fellow soldier, the, uh, the, the church worker, who we're told more about in Colossians chapter 4. He's the minister of the church in Colossae. And so it's very likely that Philemon and, and Colossians were written around the same time, and they were both sent back to Colossae in the hands of our third character, Onesimus. Onesimus is the reason why this particular letter gets written, Because Onesimus is a trust betrayer. I'm going to have to address the question of of slavery. Because Onesimus was the slave of Philemon. And so it's worth bearing in mind that slavery was very widespread in the Roman world at this time. We're not sure what put Onesimus into slavery with uh, Philemon. Sometimes it was uh, your, your nation was, was sacked by the Romans and they sold you off into slavery. That might have happened. It may be that Onesimus comes from a family that had fallen on hard times. If you ha- had mismanaged your estate or, or, or uh, the economy was, was going through a hard time and you lost your lands, uh, you lost your means of providing for yourself. And so it may be that Onesimus is simply somebody who has sold himself into slavery, much like we sign a contract with our workplace saying, I will come and give you these hours and you'll give me this much money. It may be that kind of arrangement. And certainly if you have lost your lands and lost your job, in this society you've had to do something to avoid starvation. So it may be that something like that sort of arrangement has happened, something like domestic service in Downton, if you know Downton Abbey, you know, being put into service meant hard work, but you got board and lodgings and a little bit of money. And competent slaves in the Roman world could rise up to very high positions. It's not simply down the mines. And so we mustn't, we mustn't assume that 
Onesimus is necessarily in this situation because somebody has kidnapped him and sold him into slavery. Uh, we don't know the, the particular dynamics, but we know that he's uh, a servant, a slave in the household of Philemon. And we're told, verse 16, have a look down with me, please. Uh, we're told in verse 16 that, uh, that Onesimus is Philemon's slave, uh, but he is not a competent slave. Onesimus, for whatever reason, didn't like his job very much. And as a result, he was pretty lazy. So verse 11, Paul says to, to, to Philemon, formerly he was useless to you. Which is ironic because Onesimus means a useful one. So he, 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 every time uh, Philemon was calling Onesimus to get something done and he never did it, he's thinking, the irony of calling him, useful one, useful one, come and do something. Not only was Onesimus useless when he was with Philemon, but he seems to have run away from him. Uh, Verse 18 suggests, uh, doesn't it, that uh, he might have stolen from him. If he's done anything, uh, done you any wrong or owes you anything, Paul says. Seems likely uh, Philemon has fled to Paul in Rome and he's stolen from uh, Philemon to, to, to get to Rome, to get away from him. I, I plotted that on Google Maps. Uh, it's a 30-hour drive uh, today on good roads from Colossae to Rome. So I guess that's, that's a good few days' journey, walking by boats and so on, isn't it? Uh, so you can imagine that perhaps uh, Anatomus has stolen quite a lot nicked the family silver and legged it to pay for his board and lodgings on the way to to getting to to Paul. Onesimus has betrayed Philemon. He's taken advantage of his his home and his food. And when that wasn't good enough, he has nicked stuff from his house and run away. Quite why Onesimus fled to Paul is never explained to us. Certainly running away to Rome was not a safe option. If you're a runaway slave and you get caught in Rome, uh, you could be executed on the spot, pretty much. And there were people employed to capture runaway slaves. It wasn't a safe choice for him, but it may be that Onesimus had met Paul uh, when Paul had come into Colossia and and Philemon had had met him. Perhaps he, he decided that Paul was a trustworthy man. Perhaps he thought Paul was against slavery altogether and he would defend uh, Onesimus to Philemon. Perhaps he just thought, Paul has got some leverage over my master. I can, I can manipulate that leverage to my advantage. So imagine how you would feel in Philemon's position. A lazy, thieving servant has betrayed your trust. You've every legal right to have him flogged, branded or executed when you catch him. That's the legal situation. There's no doubt in this letter, that Philemon is absolutely in the right and Onesimus is absolutely in the wrong. And what's more, Onesimus doesn't find Paul quite the way he expects to. Paul says, you've got to go home. You've got to go and face the music. Potentially, execution. (coughs) But Paul doesn't send him home to be punished, and that's what this letter is about. Paul asks Philemon not only to forgive Onesimus, but to welcome him home as a brother. Now, for, you, you know the expression of forgiving somebody who's wronged you. Okay, you uh, forgiveness means bearing the cost, doesn't it? It means uh, somebody has wronged you and you carry all of that in yourself and you wipe the slate clean and you let that person go free. 
It's always costly, and the worse the betrayal is, the more of a cost you have to bear. And Paul says, finally, when you're to bear all of the cost, because Onesimus has come to Paul and has been converted under Paul's ministry, and he's coming back to you, not only as a slave, but as a brother. And so here's the question that this passage raises for us this morning. How can we forgive those who betray us? Specifically, how can we forgive Christians who betray us? I accept that Anesmus has become a Christian. But there's a more general principle here, I think. How can we forgive Christians who have treated us appallingly? And Paul gives us two big ideas that each break down into two further ideas. The two big ideas are these. Uh, first of all, the grace of God in converting Anesmus has transformed their relationship to one another. And they need to live out their new relationship as brothers together. And secondly, uh, the grace of God is our example. God has forgiven us, so we should forgive one another. Okay? So a new relationship with each other, founded on our new relationship with God. That's the idea. Okay. Uh, so those are two big ideas. Let's jump into, uh, into the passage and uh, see how they work out. The first thing, uh, the grace of God powerfully transforms our relationship. Uh, broadly speaking, that's verses 4 to 13, I think. Uh, when God saves us, he makes us brothers and sisters together. He transforms our identity and our relationships to one another. Uh, Paul makes, it, makes this point in two ways in these verses. Let me show you them. First of all, uh, that God changes us so that we love our brothers and sisters. And secondly, that he transforms our brothers and sisters. Okay, so let's look at that. Uh, first of those, then, God's grace causes us to love our brothers and sisters, verses 4 to 7. Paul begins his letter here by observing that Philemon is a real Christian. Look at verse 5 with me. I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. See, there are, there are two things that only happen if you are truly converted that Paul raises here. And he raises them consistently through his letters as signs that you are a real Christian. Okay? One, you have faith in Jesus. Okay? And two, you love his people. Now, you'll know that experience. If your mum is not a Christian, she probably loves you anyway. Okay? But she doesn't love you because you're a Christian. She loves you because you're her child. Right? But Paul says, Philemon, you love Christians, all of them, because they are God's people, because they're part of your family now, you love Christians. God has changed Philemon's loves, and not just a warm, fuzzy feeling when he sees another Christian coming down the street. Verse 7, take a look. You have refreshed, that is, you've given rest to the hearts of the Lord's people. In the language of verse 22, as Paul anticipates himself coming to Colossae, you've given shelter and hospitality to people. You've, you've taken in the weary Christian travelling into town and you've looked after them, you've fed them, you've clothed them, you've bathed them. You don't have to know another Christian to treat them with love. You ever had that experience? You go to another country uh, and you, you, you wander into the church and you get welcomed in for lunch by people who've never met you before and will never see you again this side of eternity. But because you love other Christians. They love other Christians. That's how it works. Why do Christians love each other? 
Now, Jesus tells in Matthew 25, doesn't he? Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Every Christian, you see, is a manifestation of Christ to us. So we're to treat each other the way we would treat Jesus if he came and sat next to us. And that's why Paul prays in verse 6 that, that uh, Philemon would do this more and more. You know, do it absolutely, to the, to the greatest extent you can do, because this is what it looks like to be a Christian, Philemon. Well done, you're doing great. So let me ask you, how is your love for all God's people? Real Christians love other Christians across boundaries of race and class and social status. How are we doing as a church? How are you doing personally at refreshing the Lord's people? Back to the text. Why does Paul raise this question? Why does he focus on Philemon's love for for all God's people. And the focus, I think, is there on the word all. Because this is the test of Philemon's love, isn't it? You love all Christians, Onesimus has become a Christian. Would you love him? That's the real question for him, isn't it? Or, or do you have permission to exclude Onesimus because he's been such a naughty boy? Love everybody else, but this guy, you can treat him <coughs> appallingly. And so, verse 8, Paul says, Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. That is, on the basis of Philemon's love for God's people. Love Onesimus, Philemon. Love him as you love all the other Christians you know, because he's your brother. Now, I think Paul could stop at that point, couldn't he? I mean, that's, the, that's essentially what he wants Philemon to do. Love him because he's your brother. That's the point. But Paul wants to say three more things to help him. Because it's jolly hard, isn't it, to be told, love everybody, even the people who've really messed you around and treated you badly. And so Paul continues his letter to show him how that's possible, what it is that will give him the strength to forgive. Paul shifts the focus now from Philemon's Christianity to Onesimus' Christianity. He says, that, I'm not asking you to, to love everybody who calls himself a Christian. I'm asking you to love the guy who's manifested real Christian conversion here. Do you see how that might help Philemon? To know that the guy who's being sent back is a real born-again Christian who, who's transformed by the gospel and who really needs to be loved. Can you see how that might help him? And so the second sub-point here is God's grace transforms our betrayer. Verses 8 to 13, that's what uh, Paul goes on to say. Uh, see, many of us will have been betrayed by uh, those who remain unbelievers. That's outside the scope of this study, this text. Paul is making... One thing abundantly clear in verses 8 to 13. God has totally transformed Onesimus so that he no longer is what he used to be. So verse 10, Onesimus became Paul's son while he was in chains. That is, Paul's in chains. And Onesimus became his son. Spiritually. He came to Paul to run away from his problems he came under Paul's ministry, is now converted, and is going back to face the music. 
His purpose was to flee, and now he has a new purpose, to fulfil his responsibilities. He's a new man. And so verse 11, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. He's finally fulfilling his name. And Onesimus evidences his total transformation by the power of the gospel here, by his willingness to go back. He wasn't willing to stay before. Now he's prepared to go back the way he's come and face the music. That is, if you like, the biblical definition of repentance. Repentance is, I'm I'm going away from God, I'm not interested in his ways, I'm converted, I turn around, I, I reject my old way of life and I go back the way I've come and make amends. See, Paul has been very clear here. Onesimus is a real Christian. He's coming back to face the music because he's repented of his old way of life. Philemon, you're to love all the brothers. And Onesimus is a real brother, so love him. It's hard, it's going to be costly. You've got to wipe away the cost, the debt. That's going to be hard for you, so let me be really clear. He's a real, real Christian. In a spiritual sense, he is not the man he used to be. Same body, completely different person coming back to you. Philemon, the man who wronged you doesn't even exist anymore. He's had the new birth, utterly transformed by the grace of God. You're coming to meet a new man. Love him on those terms. Can you see how Philemon is being helped here by Paul's point? Here, a genuine Christian is responding to the wrong he has done by repenting, a willingness to face the music, a willingness to go back. He can't be sure that when he goes back, Philemon's going to listen to the letter he's got in his hand, is he? I mean, he might get a flogging. He might be executed for running away. He's willing to face the music. But, see, conversion works a real change in an SMS. Just as it has worked wonderfully in the heart of Philemon to love, And now forgive. This reunion between these two men has the potential to be a powerful witness to the reconciling power of the gospel, doesn't it? When two people become brothers and sisters, they can sweep all of that away and embrace each other as family. What a wonderful, wonderful picture of the power of the gospel. Some of us here this morning know we've hurt other people. Well, repentance includes making amends for the things that we've done. Not ignoring them, not pretending they didn't happen, but fronting up to the person that we've hurt and saying, I'm sorry. How can I make right the wrong that I've done? That might be family or friends. It might be members of this church or another where we've previously been. Can I encourage us to be like Onesimus, who in a very short time has become a different person? And is willing to to go back and make right what he's done wrong. Others of us, perhaps the majority of us, have wounds to forgive. Here is Paul's challenge to you and I. When a genuine brother or sister has betrayed you, or someone who has betrayed you becomes a brother or sister, will you bear that hurt and forgive them for the sake of the unity of the church, knowing that 
Every day we're always being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And, and the person I was yesterday no longer exists. I'm being transformed into something different. Can you forgive me for what I did yesterday as God is transforming me to be a person who will not do that again? Can you forgive that? Will you forgive? Of course, as Christians, we're still not perfect. We will offend, perhaps betray without meaning to, perhaps even betray meaning to. May God forgive us so much. But we are to forgive each other, to embrace one another as brothers and sisters, to, uh, to treat with hospitality those who've trampled our hospitality in the past. It will be very costly for us. The grace of God transforms us to love our unlovely brothers and sisters. The grace of God transforms our unlovely brother to make them increasingly like Christ. But how does the grace of God enable us to deal with this great burden of cost, this past problem in our relationship that simply will not just go away? Some of you, I don't doubt, are sitting there thinking, Ash, if you only knew what was done to me, how very terrible that was. You wouldn't ask me to forgive my betrayer. And it's that great cost that Paul goes to address in our second major point. The grace of God sets a powerful example for our relationships, verses 14 to 22. And here's the point, really. God is in the habit of cancelling vast debts against him, and we should do the same. And Paul makes the point again in two ways. Looking, first of all, at what God has done for Onesimus, and then what God has done for Philemon. First then, God's, God cancelled Onesimus' debts through his betrayal, verses 14 through 16. That's right, God worked through the betrayal. Look at verse 15. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might receive him back forever. Of course, that wasn't Onesimus' plan, and not even slightly. He didn't seek out Paul for a Bible study in the hope of becoming a Christian. But Paul here uses the passive voice, he was separated from you, to indicate that this was what God was doing. While Onesimus was running away, God was bringing him to Paul. The very betrayal of Onesimus, the the theft and the fleeing and everything that goes with it, is God's means of bringing him to conversion. Quite against his will. See, Paul was in prison, he couldn't come to to Onesimus, could he? He couldn't come to Philemon's house and do a Bible study with Onesimus. That wasn't going to work. So God had to bring Onesimus all the way to Rome to meet with Paul. So you think about Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, and that is the language, but in the plan of God, used by God to save his brothers. Twist of fate there, isn't it? Or think of Jesus, betrayed by his friends, in order that he might die on the cross to save his friends. See, God is in the habit of using betrayal to great eternal purpose. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It costs Philemon a lot, and it's going to be a lot for him to forgive, but surely it's worth it to have him back, in the language of the text, as a dear brother, verse 16, and forever. The cost is temporary. The consequence is eternal. We know, don't we, that God goes after the least and the lowest, He goes here after the runaway slave. He goes after a man like Paul who persecuted the church and was, in his own words, the chief of sinners. God is in the habit of going after the betrayer and forgiving them, pouring out his grace on them. That's what he does. 
That's how he shows how gracious he is. The debt that Onesimus owed to God was very great indeed, and God has forgiven him. Philemon, if God can forgive him, it's time you did the same. Do you see how that works? We need to copy the example of God's grace to the worst of sinners. If your betrayer became a Christian tomorrow, would you be able to embrace them as a brother or sister? Would you understand that if God can forgive them, then you can forgive them? Do you see? Can you do that honestly in your heart? But not even that is Paul's last word in this passage. He saves that for the most profound reality. The most sobering thing he has to say. He tells Philemon that he should forgive Onesimus' debts because God has forgiven Philemon's greater debts. Verses 17 to 22. Onesimus owes Philemon a debt he cannot pay. Verse 18. But Paul wants Philemon to put that debt into its proper perspective. So verse 19, Paul offers to pay back the debt. But before Philemon starts uh, tossing that up and and, and calling in the debt, he says, "Just, just remember that you owe me your very self. That's a reference to Philemon's conversion, presumably at Paul's hands as well. And Philemon, which is most precious to you, your family silver or your soul? Think uh, Jesus in Mark 8, you know, on your deathbed, you're going to be willing to give up everything that you have for one more day. Certainly for your soul. If you owned everything in the world, you'd give it up for your soul. Philemon, you were bound for hell, so deep in debt to God that you had forfeited your very self. And then I brought you the gospel and you received the gospel and you received back your soul for eternity with a relationship with God. Isn't that amazing? That you had such a debt forgiven. So which of us really owes the other here? Uh, Me, Paul, carrying Onesimus' debt or you for the eternal life that you've been given? Just turn over with me please to page 985. 985, Matthew Uh, 18, where Jesus addresses very much the same subject. And I think it is worth us spotting this, because Jesus makes it very clear. The question in verse 21 is, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? That is, uh, how many times, or how much? What is the extent to which I ought to forgive somebody else? That's the question that, that Paul is addressing, isn't it, to Philemon? It's the question Jesus addresses here. In the parable of the unforgiving servant. Verse 23, there is a king who stands in for God, who seeks to settle his accounts, and he has a servant who owes him 10,000 talents. You turn over the page to page 986, you'll notice footnote G, uh, a talent is worth about 20 years of a labourer's wages. I reckon that 10,000 of those added together is about £5 billion, give or take. That is bringing down Bearings Bank bad, isn't it? I mean, that is crashing the stock market bad. If you lose £5 billion, you're in so much trouble, you can't even begin to see the extent of it. That, says Jesus, is the debt that is owed to God by every one of us for every wrong thought, word and deed. And the king here graciously forgives the debt. He cancels the unpayable debt course he cancels it through Jesus. Jesus carries our debts to the cross and pays the penalty for them for us. 
Jesus has on his shoulders a five billion pound debt for every one of us. That is an awful weight to carry and to bear the punishment for. And that is the debt that we owed to God. And Jesus stepped in before us. Then the unforgiving servant goes out. He's just had his massive debt cancelled. And he goes out to find his own debtors, verse 28. The second servant here owes this man about £10,000, give or take, in today's money. See, Jesus doesn't make it a tiny amount, does he? I mean, I don't know about you, but if somebody owed me ten grand and didn't pay it, I would feel that a lot. It's not a small thing. I still remember one of my school friends, Mark Evans, if you're listening to the tape, you still owe me 50 quid from about 1995. Okay? 10 grand is a lot. It's a significant debt. It's going to hurt to cancel it. But it's nothing compared to the debt that he's just had cancelled by God. Do you see? See, if we only look at the debts that somebody else owes to us, the £10,000, it will seem enormous to us. And it will feel impossible to forgive. And so we have to put it next to the debt that we've had cancelled by God to, put, to give it a scale. Right? Philemon, do you understand what it cost God to forgive you? Do you grasp that you owed him a £5 billion debt that you couldn't possibly pay? Would you begrudge God the right to save Onesimus as well, to restore him to you as a brother? Is it too much to ask you to forgive someone when God has cancelled his £5 billion debt and your £5 billion debt? Is the ten grand going to stand between you? Is that really what you're going to do? Are you going to break the church apart over a penny? A pittance. I've got a penny here. My son put it on the lectern for me. Are you going to, are you going to break the church apart for that? No, says Paul, welcome him, verse 17, as you would me, as you would welcome Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, we, we were on death row. Do you grasp that? Our sin against God was not a petty infringement. It was not a small thing that God could just cast to one side. Now, we were on death row and God, in his infinite generosity... His wonderful grace forgave every one of our sins. He cancelled our debts and he cancels all the debts of all the people around you in the church. And if we understand that at all, then surely we can carry no ill feeling towards our brothers and sisters. Of course there are wrong things, many of them. Some of them are small, some of them are tragically large indeed. Think of David, raped Bathsheba, had her husband killed, and yet has the temerity to stand up in Psalm 51 and say, against you only have I sinned, God. Not because he hasn't done terrible things to other people, but because he understands the scales that comparatively he has done far worse to God than he has to any person. And God has forgiven them all. And so must we. What extraordinary fruit the Spirit of Christ would produce in the church if we grasped this and really loved each other without reservation, without holding any debt, 
What freedom there would be for our hearts to be free of, of anger and resentment and bitterness. What fruit of the Spirit could be produced in us? Love, joy, peace, patience and so on. If we got rid of those things that hold us back, that weigh us down, that do far more damage to us than the person who has indebted themselves to us in the first place. And so says Paul, the Christian loves all of his brothers and sisters, including the most unlovely. Every one of our brothers and sisters is being transformed by the grace of God, so they're not what they were. Love them for who they are. God has been gracious to them, and so should we be. And most importantly of all, God has been gracious to you. He has cancelled the vast debts that were on our ledgers against God. And so we should forgive every debt against us. We're going to respond by praying. You'll notice that we put the confession after the sermon today.